Matters of Mortology, a novella, written and read by T.M. Camp. Chapter 11 Epigraph Death and the sun are not to be looked in the face. And that is from The Maxims of La Roquefoucauld. My regret weighed heavy on me during my walk home. Regardless of his culpability, Hampton was at best an inveterate gossip. I had no doubt that by the time I reached my own gate, those responsible for the vandalism in the yard would have heard the news of my outburst along with the rest of the village. Steeped in frustration, I berated myself at each step I took for giving them the satisfaction. I wished, profoundly, that I had not gone into town that morning but stayed behind to tend the graveyard with Mason. Had I not, though, it would have made little difference to anyone. Save the blue bottles, of course. I heard them at their work as I was making my way through the plots, their cheerful productivity buzzing just beneath the surface of my preoccupied mind. And, as it was a cool day, there was little stench. So it was by sight that I discovered the corpse, already swarming with flies. I might have said his name. I do not recall. Regardless, Mason could not answer through that dark veil fluttering and buzzing over his face. Chapter 12 Epigraph Who summoned you, darkest flower? You are attended by death. Your lips bear the heavy tang of blood. This vengeance, sister, this trespass will not free your heart to love. And that is from Rose's Song by Michel Robert Gaines. The house was silent but for the crackling of the dried flowers in the hearth. I held my hands out to their heat, but I could not be warmed. Their deep fragrance permeated the room with the taste of death and sorrow, so nauseating to me now. Staring into the embers, I thought of Mason, on the slab, in the box, laying him to rest next to his lady whispering the holy rites over him as I tossed shovelfuls of dirt into the hole. I lay back from the fire. My shoulders ached. Digging a grave is hard work for one to manage alone. Had he struggled? Had he called out for help? Had he seen the face of his killer, or did they take him unawares? It was with these questions drifting through my mind that I passed over into a most unpleasant dream. And it seemed that I was standing in the mason shack with that pale, ruined man laid out before me. I opened him gently with the shears, drawing out his organs one by one. They were shriveled and dried, hollow in my hands. In the corner of the room... The dog whined, scraping her matted tail across the dusty floor. 
I threw the parched pieces to her, and she snapped them out of the air, popping the leathery scraps between her teeth like balloons. She grinned back at me, the cracked tongue lolling out, rasping against her yellow smile. Looking back down into Mason's eyes, I searched for some final glimpse of his killer, captured in his dull, dry gaze like an insect in amber. But the only face I found there was my own, darkly warped against his bloodshot eye. There was a low sound in the room, and the dry hinges of the door squealed behind me as I turned, and awoke in my library, clenched and taut and chill. The fire burned low in the grate, the familiars dozing restlessly in the corners as they dreamed the dreams of the dead. I waited there, unmoving, listening. The sound of the door in my nightmare I felt certain was an echo of some noise in the waking world pulling me out of my restless dream. One ear poised against the silent night, I held my breath to listen. The sound came again, startling in its closeness, a dull rasp, the squeal of wood against wood from somewhere in the manor above me. My thoughts immediately went to my sister and I half rose, not entirely certain of what to do. She had opened a window, one of the windows facing the graveyard, one of those forbidden windows that our ancestor had painted over so many years before. I feared not for myself, but for her. Had it not been forbidden by my office, I would have called out her name. As it was, I could only listen to her voice, low and measured, calling down from above. And then, from below, from outside, a voice replied. A whispered conversation in the night, their voices loud enough for listening but too soft to be understood. But the meaning was there the music of it even without the words, and so I could not help but eavesdrop on some unknown man romancing my sister in the night. There was so much in his voice as he spoke to her, his words reaching up to catch hers, falling in a gentle rain. I could not remember the last time she had laughed, that foreign sound filling me with such shame and delight. I imagined her, poised like an ingenue in one of those modern romances, her elbows propped on the windowsill, smiling down at her love as he began to sing. That voice, rising and falling so softly in the night, a sound so pure that I heard her gasp, felt the gentle tug of it myself. It was a song to span the shadows between the stars, to draw them together in a bright and lovely web. On this went, on he sang to her, perhaps for hours. Then her voice, no more than a whisper, drifted down to him. An invitation, an invocation, a call from love to love. I sat back in my chair. Perhaps I was scandalized by her actions, by her disregard for our family's reputation and our name. Perhaps I thought of the woman in the village, her frank and open gaze as she looked down at me. Perhaps. 
I honestly don't remember. But I do recall that my room was cold that long and lonely night, and eventually I fell into an envious sleep. I awoke in the night. The sound of footsteps over my head, measured and rhythmic, moving from one side of the house to the other and then back again. In my mind, I saw the two of them joined together, dancing in each other's arms. I heard their voices mingling in song. Lulled by their music, I drifted back into sleep, only to wake once more much later in the dark early hours of dawn, that coldest time, listening as my sister closed her window. Later, off in the fields, that strange animal began to cry out again, the sad and lonely calls breaking the silent night until morning finally came. Chapter 13 Epigraph Fantasy, abandoned by reason, produces impossible monsters. Francisco José de Goya y Lucentes Nosferatu, Burke said quietly over his shoulder, leading me through the shop. Around us, the stacked bookshelves seemed to lean in and listen as he continued his litany of names. Vampire, Dracul, Lananshi, Succubi and Incubi, all prowlers of the night, undead. It was a term unfamiliar to me. Undead? Half-human and worse, Hazard's children, the shadows of humanity, are darkling cousin. I nodded curtly, little patience for Burke's penchant for poetry. Burke gestured to the books around us. Inventions, all, dreamed up by mothers to keep their children in line, stories told around the fire, hunter's tales, cheap pasteboard diversions, but he stopped at a shelf, glancing at the titles. It is not wise to speak of these old things, my friend, not even during the day. He passed a few books to me, adding to the stack I was carrying for him. I'd come to Burke early that morning with news of Mason, and the mystery of it. Though his wound had been savage, his throat torn to ribbons, there'd been very little blood apart from what soaked Mason's shredded shirt collar. Had I not known better, I would have said another undertaker had already begun the process of preparation when I'd come across the body. With more than a month to go before the doddering prefect would make his stop, I'd no one to turn to but Burke. I did not know how to investigate nor pursue an assassin. It was obvious to me that the culprit of Lady's demise was responsible for Mason as well, which ruled out my previous theory. No wolf could have done such things and yet left the body unconsumed. And Mason showed no other signs of struggle. Burke listened to my curious tale with sympathy and genuine sadness over Mason's murder. His eyes grew sharp when I told him of the loss of blood and the odd cries I'd been hearing in the night. He rattled off that inventory of monsters before silently heading off through the shelves, shifting his stock and handing me volumes to carry along behind him like a schoolboy. 
I walked with him, listening to the small noises around his shop, the creak of the old shelves settling, the sound of books long gone idle. Even though these aren't real stories, they might be true, he said at last, somber and thoughtful. His comment confused me, and I said so. Listen to me now. A thing may be true without being real. Think of these books, he gestured once more to the shop around us, full of stories that never happened, populated by people who never lived. And yet, each of them has a story as true as anything in your life or mine, and with as much substance as either of us, perhaps even more. These stories, he told me earnestly, they may be true. But are they real? I replied. Frowning, he looked away. I don't know. All that is, it must grow out of something else. Even lies and fantasy have a kernel of truth at their center. But does that make them real? I don't know. He nodded, as though convincing himself of the intricacies of his own rationale. Yes, these stories, they may be real without being true. Perhaps mistaking my thoughtful silence for confusion, he went on. What I mean to say is this. If such a monster exists, and I believe that it may, then it is not, it cannot be a true thing. It is a lie of life that has departed from the living, but refuses to wait in shadow with the rest of the silent dead. He turned his head at a sudden creak from one of the surrounding shelves. Commonplace enough, but it revealed how deep his disquiet ran. For all his philosophical wool-gathering and semantics, I understood that Burke was indeed and truly frightened. Following his gaze, I saw how quickly the day was winding down. In the increasingly dim light of his shop, the shadows grew deep. To our unquiet minds, in any one of them might lurk a monster. He turned back to me and went on, his voice pitched somewhat lower than before. Somehow, this false thing has crawled back across the boundaries, or, rather, God has allowed it to do so. This was uncharacteristic of him, to stray into faith, and it unsettled me. But why? What purpose could there be? Burke offered me the rueful smile of a skeptic. Well, who's to say? You've often told me that Terminus sets things to his purpose, and that nothing falls outside the boundaries of his lines. Knowing him too well, I did not bristle at his gentle teasing. Burke's faith ran deeper than that thin, cynical facade. He believed on some level, I knew, even if he did not accept it of himself. Who's to say? he asked, serious once more. But if he has opened the door to this abomination, it is apparent that you play a role in his purpose. If you truly believe in your God and I do, then it seems obvious to me that it falls to you to exercise this monster, to drive out this corruption. He rubbed one hand against the other, clapping them together for warmth. You have to restore the boundaries that have been broken between life and death. But surely a monster? 
Who's to say that this isn't just some crazed villager, or worse yet, a contingence of concerned citizens intent on sending a message? It seemed more likely to me that some human agent, however cruel or crazed, was responsible for the events. I wasn't inclined to accept this theoretical monster of his. Burke dismissed my rational approach with a scornful twist of his mouth, adding more to my growing armful of books. Uh, the signs are too clear. Signs? The hallmarks of folklore. The drained corpses, the desecrations in the graveyard, the strange sounds in the fields. Those could be the work of anyone trying to scare me. His eyes met mine, steady and unblinking. Only the rarest of books tell of these things, most of them banned. Name me one person in our pleasant little hamlet that has the knowledge to impersonate such a mythology. Apart from the two of us, you mean. And you didn't know until I told you, he said smugly. So, you're the culprit, I grinned at him. I should have known. Burke's face grew serious. Uh, don't even joke of such things. One aspect all of the stories agree on is that a blight like this can overtake entire communities, corrupting even the purest of hearts. In such cases, only fire and death can finally free the afflicted from their torment. That sounds rather aggressive. Burke nodded. To put it mildly, yes. But remember that you battle not against flesh and blood. At least, not anymore. He stopped for a moment to look at me. Hazard has set loose her children in this land once again, he said at last, somber and thoughtful. His words sent a chill through me. The invocation of Hazard was as uncommon then as it is today, and from an agnostic such as Burke even more disturbing. So few things could move him to such conviction. Hazard and her children prowling the darkness on the outskirts. A horrible thought. Though contemporary minds in these times view her as no more than a fairy tale ghoul, back then we believed in Hazard and kept well inside the boundaries set by Terminus. Many of us had heard the stories passed down from our forebears. We knew how closely the borders were prowled, how easily trespass could occur. But even so... A monster? This thing has been given the strength to claw back into life once more. It has strength enough for that. It has strength enough to defeat you. Burke was right. I am not, by inclination as well as vocation, a man of confrontation. Nor am I conversant with the vocabulary of battle, and courage is not part of my character. The hardest struggle I face each day is keeping up with the inevitable and exigent ebb of life in my village. I had no experience matching my strength against that of the unwilling dead. So what can I do? God would not give me this task if I were doomed to fail it. Are you so sure about that? Burke asked, stooping to read the faded gilt bindings on a shelf in front of him. Plenty have done precisely that. Did the fault lie with them or with their god? Terminus does not raise us up in order to watch us fall, I quoted, 
Maybe so. He rose with a grunt, tossing another tome on top of my ever-growing stack. That's your strength, then. That's your weapon. What is? I shifted my grip to keep the books from sliding out of my arms under this new weight. Your faith, he said, heading up the aisle. I followed, ever the apprentice. No weapons or wiles will serve you so well as that. He led me back through the shelves to the desk at the back of the store. I set the books down on the desk, massaging my sore arms. Are there no weapons, then? I asked. Oh, no, we have weapons, Burke said, gesturing to his stack of books. We just have to find them. Together, we pored over his books late into the night drawing out every anecdote, however obscure, to lend depth to our understanding of the battle to come. And for every point of agreement we uncovered, a hundred more contradictions shouted down my confidence, however feeble. But Burke was right. In the end, we did find one or two charms that would prove useful in the days to come. Finally, just before dawn, Burke put his head in his hands. You'll have to go to her, he told me. Who? I did not look up from the arcane text opened in front of me, though, truth be told, I'd been reading the same page for nearly an hour. The Eastern Woman, the Authoress. What? He sighed and raised his head. The series Ling. Though it's nothing but a ghoulish fantasy, there may be some clue in her book that might help arm you against this abomination. Whatever she knows, whatever she may be able to pass on, it could prove useful to you. But what do I say to her? Say to her, he considered for a moment. Say to her that her monster, or one of its kindred, might be here among us. But... What do I tell her? What is this thing? Vampire, Burke told me quietly. It is called a vampire. In silence, we bent back over the books before us, waiting for dawn to come. Chapter 14 Epigraph Women do not weep but for men and children. And that is from Proverbial Wisdom from the Midlands by Lady Diana Ulster. The hollow fruit on the gate rattled as I entered Ceres Ling's garden. Within I found that every plant, shrub, and leaf had withered somehow, the lush growth crumbling under the touch of some unknown blight. Nothing had been spared, but whatever had struck this place it wasn't natural. The stones that marked out the gently curving paths had been scattered, their boundaries blurred beyond recognition. The head of the stone demon lay on the blackened lawn, the baleful gaze accusing me as I passed through the bare skeletal trees clutching at the flat cast of the sky. The house squatted over the ruins, the windows staring blankly down on the tragedy. Whoever had done this, they'd been comprehensive in their vandalism. My head swam at the sheer scope of the destruction, 
I could not imagine the force of will and effort it took to dismantle the former beauty of the place. It seemed beyond even the petty hate and prejudice of the village. I wandered in the new wasteland, fearful of what grisly discoveries I might have to confront should I venture up to the house. I found her sitting by the pond where the elegant, iridescent fish once swam, their tarnished carcasses drifting lazily on the greasy surface of the water, gutted and ruined forever. She did not look up at my approach nor ask my purpose. With the sleek, sad beauty of her face unveiled, I realized that she was not past the birthing age. For a moment I hesitated, uncertain in my transgression and fearful of rebuke. Seemingly oblivious to my trespass, she spoke, her voice so low and measured that I had to move in closer in order to hear. You want to know about monsters? I nodded. It never occurred to me to ask how she had anticipated my purpose. It was a long time before she spoke again. I have heard a story told, not in my lands but another, and it is the story of the first people. The god of that time, and I do not know which god it was, shaped the first people from the earth, the mud, the dust. In that time, the god of that place had made man and woman as one, male and female together, joined here at the back. A garden was given to them, and responsibility to find the names of the things they saw there. So the man and woman spent their days going about their work, speaking to each other over their shoulder, always together. Soon they fell in love, as was natural and good, and what the god of that time had intended. But their lips could not reach, and neither could they love one another as they desired. So when the god of that place came next to visit, they prayed for him to draw a line between them and allow them their freedom to do what they desired. The god of that time took mercy on them and did as they asked. For the first time they saw the face and form of their beloved. Their love feasted on the sight and grew stronger than before. So consumed, they did not think to thank their god of that place, nor did they notice when he departed. They joined then, together once more, this time face to face, and it was good. A chill wind rattled through the stripped branches overhead. Ceres Ling waited as the bony fingers of the willows stirred the surface of the pond. Once it had passed, she continued. And, after a time, they spent their love and returned to their work together in the garden. But no longer did they have to scuttle like crabs back to back, and so their work was sooner and better accomplished than before. And yet it took them much longer to complete, for each was so distracted by the other and stopped often to join together again. A day came when the god of that time returned once more to walk in the garden and take joy in what he had made. He called for the man to come and walk with him, and tell him the names of things. But the man did not answer. So the god went looking for his man in the garden, and it was in his garden that he found him. There they were, joined together, face to face. 
the God of that time spoke to his man, Come and walk with me. But his man, busy with his woman, did not hear nor answer. And the God of that time said, I made you both one and together, yet you begged of me to separate what I had made, one from the other, and free. Now why do I find you joined again? Why do you not come to me when I call? Why do you not hearken when I speak? I am God, and I am angry. Then the God of that time separated them, and his man was very angry, saying to him, You gave her to me. The God answered, I give and I take, I am God, who are you? And his man answered, I am man and she is mine, not yours. So the God of that time drove woman out of the garden and into the shadow, all for the pride of his man. Once woman had gone, he asked again, Who are you? And his man answered, I am alone. The God of that time said, Come and walk with me. But his man replied, I am man. I will not walk with God. I walk alone. As he has ever since. She sighed then, this beautiful woman. I could not tell if it was an affectation of her performance or if she truly felt it. Now, woman, with the help of man, had made something of her own, and she carried it away with her out of the garden. After a time, she brought it forth in shadow, and when it had reached its age, it faced its mother, and together, in the darkness, they made more and kind company to fill the shadow. In time, there were many of them, and in the shadow their mother smiled, while somewhere else, in what used to be a garden, Man walked alone and apart from the God of that time, as he is walking still. She finished, the evening deep upon us. I did not speak. She looked up at me, her face as smooth and pale as an egg. That is the story I've told. Having little or no experience with authors, I asked, Is it one of your own? To my instant regret, her brow wrinkled. I have no stories of my own. They are all given by the gods. But you wrote it. She frowned, doubling my anxiety. I am not a god. I did not. I cannot create these things. They are given to me, and so I give them to you. But you're a writer, I protested. I've heard of your fame, I saw the book she left for me. She faced me, and, with the last light of the day on her face, I saw at last the woman for whom poor Gaines had given up his life, and I understood. My books, my fame, she did not quite sigh. They are nothing, none but gods shaped the chaos, none but gods can raise something out of the shadow. I did not dare to say that I did not understand. I did not have to. She sighed again, saying, You came, wanting to know of monsters. I have told you of monsters. Now, go your way with this knowledge. 
I stood there a few moments longer, waiting for something more, yet she did not speak to me again. I left through that damned rattling gate, left her alone to stare into the gloaming with that damned beautiful face. I have not seen her again in this life. Chapter 15 Epigraph Ashcroft resolved himself that he would speak with her father. The time had come to make his feelings known and speak plainly, regardless of the consequence. Though the patriarch had long since harbored an obvious dislike for him, he had no doubt that a formal presentment of his intentions would be, in time, accepted on its own merits. He was, of course, quickly proven wrong. And that is from The Unsuitable Suitor by Emily Shackley. Through the fields I went, beneath an evening stretched full across the sky like a blindfold. But I did not go alone. I was aware that someone was following me, and I, who had worked with scores of the dead, I, who had entertained familiars by firelight, I was afraid. For whoever it was, they were not only following. With every step, they came closer approaching fast on my heels. I quickened my pace a measure, and I heard theirs increase as well, whispering through the tall grasses like the wind. When I could stand it no further, I stopped and turned to face the shadow waiting nearby. The evening light gone dim, no more could I see of them than a dark smudge against the sky. I heard the figure draw breath, prepare to speak, and then stop. I waited. I thought of running. I thought to pray. I thought of my sister and of the woman on the balcony. Like anyone who hears death's tread on the landing, I was reminded of unfinished business. Moreover, I did not know who would bury my body when this thing slaughtered me out here on the lonely road. I had not taken an apprentice. Save for my sister, I might not even be mourned. To my relief, it spoke with a voice so young and sweet that I nearly laughed at myself. This was not the voice of a monster, but of someone known to me. It was the voice I had heard the night before, serenading my sister. It was the voice of her lover. And he said, You do not know me, sir, but I am acquainted with your sister. Indeed. I could not help but note the hesitation in his voice, the social awkwardness of the young. I admit I felt something like sympathy toward him already, though we had just met, and no small amount of envy either. I would never know the frankness of love expressed and returned. I found her of late, walking in the fields by night. I should say, rather, that we found each other, and I must confess we are each the others now. I may have smiled at this. I might have been shocked, I do not recall. Indeed. But he must have perceived some disapproval in my tone, for he rushed to respond. Please, I must apologize for this boldness of mine. I assure you of my integrity and devotion. You can be certain that she returns my admirations in kind. 
I have no doubt of this, I replied. I know something of your romance already. Then she has told you of me, of my affections? I shook my head. No, indeed, but I do not sleep so soundly. I'm sorry, I do not understand. Whispered conversations in the night never sound so quiet as lovers think, neither so their songs nor their dances, and the nighttime hours only make them louder. I chuckled. I have, I must myself confess, eavesdropped on your mutual admirations, and I know my sister's voice. I have no doubt that she loves you. Squinting into the gloom, I said, But these darker hours do nothing for my eyes. Come, let me meet you properly at last. He wavered a moment, a mere shadow against the darkening sky. I could see his outline blotting out those few early stars, but nothing more. I stepped forward and raised my hand to him, but he moved back from me, deeper into the safety of the shadows. My dear fellow, I said to the youth, I assure you that I'm not opposed to your intentions. You needn't fear me of all people. But he did not relent nor return. He must be very young indeed, I told myself. He said, I apologize for my behavior, sir. I confess that I am of low status and somewhat ashamed of my position in this life. Tosh, I waved his concerns away. These things matter not to me nor my sister. Yes, yes, she is the jewel of your bloodline. It was a strange expression, and, like much of his phraseology, it rang a little odd to my ear. I am curious, son. How is it that you knew me? I'm afraid I don't quite follow your question, the shadow replied. How is it that you knew me to belong to my sister? Have we made some acquaintance prior to this? I was intrigued by this fellow, by his youth, his easy familiarity with me and my office. I was trying to place him among those I knew in the village. I saw her face in yours, he replied. I had not cause to be surprised, but his remark took me aback. As I had not seen my sister in many years, I'd forgotten our resemblance. While my face in the mirror each morning has grown old, hers in my memory has not. She remained in some ways and always that child I had only last seen when I began my training. But, of course, she was a child no longer. I see. Well, she will be waiting for me. For us both, I expect. Come and go with me. I began walking again towards home, glancing from time to time in order to confirm that the boy in the shadows was still with me. I could not see his face. It was too dark for that. We were, each of us, quiet for some time, but it was I who broke the silence. Are you from the village, then? Or do you come from one of the hillside families? I wasn't sure which I preferred. I hoped that whoever his people were, I would find them tolerable as relatives. There came no reply from the shadow against the stars. 
Apart from yesternight, I remarked, I hoped casually, I do not believe I know your voice. My companion was a moment or two coming to his answer. Yes, there's no reason you should know it, nor me. We might have had some contact in the past, but it was nothing more than brief, and not such that I think you would recall. Perhaps you could remind me while you stop at our manor. I expect my sister will be rising soon. She will, I'm sure, be delighted to see you. To my surprise, he declined. I had intended to visit Miranda somewhat later this evening, sir, and although your invitation is most welcome, I must beg your gracious release. I have other matters to attend to. I do not wish to impose, but if you are so inclined to extend your invitation, perhaps I might visit you another time. You are welcome in our house, I answered. In the dark, I heard him smile. I am sure of it, even now. I am most grateful. It is most appreciated. And then he was gone. I saw his form receding against the horizon. The distance made him look very young indeed, nearly a child. Then, turning my own way, I walked on to my sister and my home thinking not of monsters and desecrations for once, but rather of the sound of her laughter in the night. I might have smiled myself. I might have wept. I do not recall. Chapter 16 Epigraph When the time comes, every undertaker is called to face a loss of their own be it a friend or a family member, be it to mortality or matrimony. In any case, the lessons learned early in your apprenticeship will help you stay true to your vocation. This release is the undertaker's professional responsibility, and it supersedes whatever other concerns might distract you from your duty to, quite simply, accept the fact that you need to let go of the life that's already escaped. And that is from... Notes from a Life Among the Dead by Oliver Gast Brother, I have met a man. I do not know what you may think of this. I do not know if you approve. But I do know that my heart is his. He has rescued me from the loneliness of this life with the greatest gift imaginable. I hope you may one day know such gifts for yourself. I do not know what our plans will be, nor where they will lead us. He is somewhat young in this world, and everything is to him still new and wonderful. As he has shown me wonder, so too will I show him. Brother, he is my life and my soul. We have been apart so long, you and I. I know you will not deny me this joy, and I thank you for your love. The dumbwaiter waited open before me, a dark hole that I lived within, listening for my sister's faint voice from above. I closed it and, still holding her note, went out onto the balcony at the back of the house. Above, the sky was clear and dry. No mist hid the stars from me this night. 
Below, the graveyards and monuments were pale against the darkness. A yellow square of light fell across the yard, cast by my sister's open window above, waiting for her lover to return. I had no plans to take a wife in my time. I hadn't the patience to undergo the endlessly formal rituals of selection and courtship, those carefully timed couplings, the lonely and distant obligation, the tug of separation across an impossible boundary. Yet there was no reason my sister should not be happy. Once I might have expected her to offer herself back to the profession, a suitable helpmeet for one of my caste. Certainly her own life of solitude had prepared her for the role, and she might have, in time, found a level place where contentment would make due for happiness. But no longer. I knew, of course, that she would leave with him. I would take possession of the house and continue on in my service until my own years came to their lonely end. I reread her note by the light of the stars, noting that she had not signed it. I wondered if it was an oversight on her part, or perhaps a familiarity between us. It's possible, I suppose, that time and neglect had taken her name from her. My thoughts were interrupted by a sound from below, a voice rising from the graveyard. I saw a dark form moving among the pale stones. My first thought was of the monster, that it had returned. Then the figure split apart and ran, laughing, doubled, through the plots, like twin beads of mercury across a dark mirror. My sister and her lover. I watched them embrace and spin together amongst the graves, much as I had eavesdropped on their dancing the night before. My twin laughed, wild and joyful, she threw her arms out in wild abandon, her upturned face paler than the gravestones under the stars. Her lover answered her with a laughter of his own and song. Then I was on the path, running down to them with no clear thought in my head. You've been listening to Matters of Mortology by T.M. Camp, written and read by the author, with music composed by Devin Anderson. To find out more about the author or to download additional chapters, visit www.tmcamp.com. Release is the undertaker's professional responsibility, and it supersedes whatever other concerns might distract you from your dirty, from your dirty, dirty duty. Brr.